You know anybody like that? A lot of people who put on a good face, and they try to keep themselves busy, but their hearts are so empty, and there's a silence there because they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you take for granted the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, even in your dark moments? You're never, ever alone. And think about as bad as it can be. Life can be hard sometimes. Even the Apostle Paul, read 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said that they were so burdened that they despaired even of life. And that's with the Lord. Can you imagine how it must be without the Lord? And so our prayer for you, whether you're watching on live stream or here this morning, if you don't know Christ, the living Christ, living in you, having forgiven your sins and paid for your sins, having a right relationship with God, our prayer is today that you will repent of your sins and put your trust, your full trust, 100% in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross to pay for your sins and to know the Prince of Peace living and ruling in your life <clears throat> and that for eternity. Can anybody say amen to that? Let's pray. Father, as we come into this season of the year, even in the world, the world makes so many promises and people have expectations. And a lot of people are thinking that something that they do on December 25th is going to maybe bring love into their life. It's going to bring friendship into their life. Going to bring prosperity. Going to bring health. All kinds of things that people think as they look for their Christmas miracles. Lord, I want to ask you to do a work in those of us who know you. That we might love them enough to tell them the truth. There is no miracle in December 25th. The miracle is in God sending his son to live a perfect life and die on the cross to pay for our sins and then conquering death, hell, and the grave by being raised from the dead on the third day and the sovereign king now sits and rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father, and that's the same one who is going to return one day very soon. And people need to know that. And people need to put their faith and their trust in Christ. And Christians need to remember that as well. We forget. We get distracted. Please draw us back to you. And we pray that you would heal those who are sick, comfort those who are grieving. I think of Sue Sharp this morning. I pray that you would take people who are recovering from sickness and surgery and trials. I think about people that are doing everything they can to keep their businesses afloat right now. There are all kinds of things that people are going through and they need to see Jesus and they need to trust and hope in him. I pray, Father, you would put yourself on display and use us to tell others about the good news of Christ and help us to believe it and to hold on to it ourselves in spite of everything going on around us. 
Thank you, Lord, for that song. And thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in freedom today to worship you in spirit and in truth. Now take your word and make our hearts receptive. Give us minds capable of comprehending what the Spirit would say to his church today. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with your joy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. This morning, if you would, take your Bibles. And uh, I tried to figure out a way to make Exodus more Christmassy. And I couldn't do it. So we're going to look at something else today. And uh, we're going to talk about something that I have never preached on before but certainly believe with all of my heart. And what is that? I borrowed a title from uh, Spurgeon. Can't get any better than that. And that is that the infinite became an infant. And I want you to think about that as you go into the Christmas season. The infinite became an infant. And we're going to talk about Christ becoming God, becoming flesh becoming human. Now I know that we all believe that because what else are you going to believe about Christmas? That's the deal. And most of the time we spend our time trying to convince people that the baby born in Bethlehem was God in flesh. And that's certainly a worthy pursuit, isn't it? But it's also just as much true, and we're going to see this morning, just as much necessary that God had to become flesh. Now back in the early church, and the book of First John and some others are written in the context of Gnosticism that had invaded the church. And one of the concepts of the Gnostics, they had this deeper, hidden knowledge that went way beyond anything that just simple apostles or simple scripture would know. And they came up with the idea that anything material is evil and sinful and not redeemable, this, this pulpit, you know? And uh, they would say, though, that something spiritual, an angel, some type of a spirit, or even sound, words, that those are holy and they're not evil. And so God, being a spirit, is holy. And would God ever become material? evil. And they would say, no, it can't be. And so a group of people called the Docetists started teaching that Jesus Christ was a ghost. He was a phantom. He lived here on earth and he appeared to be here, but he was so holy he couldn't possibly have flesh, blood, or bone. He was just a spirit appearing to be here. Is that a problem? Well, it's a problem when you look at the gospel, when you look at the scripture, and when you look at the plan of redemption. It all has to come together, and Jesus Christ has to be God and man joined together in what we call the hypostatic union. 100% God and 100% man. And why is that so Important. Why do we have to have that? Well, in the book of 1 John, in chapter 1, it says this. 
That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, that's the sound, they would agree, oh, that's holy, that's spiritual, that's righteous, which we have seen with our eyes, well, there's no problem with that. You were seeing a spirit or a ghost or some type of a phantom. He just appeared to be in human form. Which we have looked upon, uh-oh, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. How do you touch words? How do you touch the word of life? Well, you can only do that if he comes in material form. Verse 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And so John makes the statement here in these verses, this is the God, the holy God, and he sends his son, and we not only have seen him, we not only have heard him, we have touched him. Why would that be such a big deal? And why would that be important? Let me give you four reasons. You could probably come up with a hundred, but let me give you four, and these are the things that ought to be solid in our life. Now, you might say, well, uh, pastor, we already believe this. Why would we spend time talking about this? Listen carefully, because if you don't spend time talking about what you believe, that means you're not talking about it. If you're not talking about it, that means that in time, what happens? People forget about it. And it's an opportunity for the devil to slip heresy in. And almost every heresy, almost every cult, if they have a Jesus figure in their cult, some of them, of course, don't, but if they do, you'll notice that they tend to emphasize one of two things. Either they overemphasize his deity, the fact that he is God, and then they sort of uh, let his humanity slip aside, or... They do what a lot of liberals do. They emphasize he was just a man, he was just a human, and they let his deity slip. You've got to have both if you're going to have redemption. And so today we talk about the humanity of Jesus Christ. The baby in a manger was God, yes, but he was also a human being just like you. And the man who is in heaven today at the right hand of God the Father, is he Lord of all? Of course he is. Is he God? Of course he is. But you are represented in heaven because there is a human being. There is the man, Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of God the Father, praying for you as a brother praying for you as a family member, praying for you as a fellow human being who has lived through the trials of life, who has been tempted, who has been tested, who has been pressured, who has been betrayed, who has hurt, who has suffered pain, 
who has suffered loss, and he understands everything that you're going through. Let me give you four reasons why this is important. First of all would be because the gap between God and man. Here is the problem. If you and I want to be saved and want to be right with God, we cannot get to God as we are. Our sin separates us from God. We might as well say we're going to go to California and jump across the Pacific Ocean. Some of you might make it a little bit further than some of the rest of us do. But all of us end up falling down on the rocks below and perishing. And that's the way it is when we try to get to heaven on our own. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, everything is touched and tainted by our sin. And trying to get to God, we are so weighed down, we are so incapable of saving ourselves that the only way that we could know God and receive eternal life it has to be a one-way street God has to come to us and so he did through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ the gap was too great for us to span and so God had to come to us he's far superior and he's not discoverable he has to reveal himself there's a moral and spiritual gap between us and he is the one that bridged the gap for us Isaiah chapter 59 verse 1 says behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save that tells me the problem's not with God, is it? His ear is not dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So if that's the case, then it means if something has to be done in order for us to be saved, and it does... God is going to have to be the one that does it because as it says in the book of Jonah, and it's so true, salvation is of the Lord. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. And then Paul emphasizes repetitively these next two words, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, without Jesus becoming a man, you don't have a mediator. You don't have a hope. Why? Because the gap is too far for you to bridge. You can't make it. You can't get there. You could never, ever be acceptable to God. You could never, ever get to God. And knowing that, God came to you. You remember the old Squire Parsons song that Brother Dale used to sing? The gulf that separated me from God. It was so vast its crossing I could never afford. From where I was to his demand it seemed so far. I cried, dear Lord, I cannot come to where you are. And then that wonderful chorus, but he came to me. And that's what the gospel is. Jesus coming to us because he is the only one that could bridge the gap that was between God and man. So when we think about Christmas and the incarnation of Christ, or of God in Jesus Christ, and that baby in a manger, that is God coming to us 
and God is bridging the gap. Secondly, <coughs> there's an office that Jesus has right now. The office of high priest. The office of the intercessor. He is representing you before God. And every time the devil comes with an accusation against you, even a true accusation against you, Jesus is praying for you. And uh, we know in the Bible, because of what he did with the Apostle Peter and other situations like that, he prays even before we sin. He prays for us knowing the temptation that's going to come. And he certainly prays for us while we are in the midst of sin. And he prays for us after we sin that we will return. He is representing us as a lawyer in the courts of heaven. In fact... This is something that he does because he's not only God, but because he is also a human. Tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. He is able to, as the psalmist said, to remember our frame that we are dust. How does he remember that? Because he has been where we are. He has been what we are, and he has lived life as we live it. So as God and man, he not only spans the gulf, but he understands how to pray for us, and he understands what we're going through. He understands the pressure. He understands the temptation, and he doesn't just get disgusted by it. He doesn't walk away from us. He doesn't leave us on our own. He is actively engaged in our victory, actively engaged in our spiritual growth, actively engaged in our spiritual warfare, actively engaged in our restoration whenever we fall away. He's been tested, tempted, yet without sin. And amazingly, this God in human flesh, as much as he hates sin, he loves us. And the Bible says that he is sympathetic toward those who are being tempted. That's an amazing thing. I've had times in my life growing up when I knew if my parents could see me now, they would be so angry, so disappointed, so disgusted with me. And boy, there would be some punishment to pay. But I never thought of them one time as being sympathetic toward me. They would always say something like this. Your parents do this? You know better than that. You know what the rules are. How dare you do something like that? How dare you drag our family through that? How dare you reflect upon us in the way that you are? We've heard those words, haven't we? And yet the Bible says something that if you will think about it, it will utterly astound you and it will change your view of God. It's in Hebrews chapter 4. It's in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, why do we only focus on the tempted as we are and try to find a loophole? The truth of the matter is, why would he be sympathetic toward us? This is a God whose heart breaks for you whenever you're tempted. This is a God 
who is compassionate toward you when that temptation comes up and wave after wave of temptation comes and you feel yourself buckling under it, you have a high priest in heaven who feels for you, who has compassion for you while you're going through it because he's been there. The good news is he shows us how to have victory and he was qualified to die on the cross for us and to gain our victory, but he doesn't do it with any kind of of contempt for you. He doesn't do it with disdain for you. He is not disgusted with you. He is the one who loves you, who paid for your sins, and while you are in that temptation, even if you brought it on yourself, he feels for you. And he is sympathetic for you. As a parent, I learned some things that I didn't understand about my own parents. Do you remember, remember your parents saying, this hurts me more than it hurts you? Did you believe it? I didn't believe it. Then I became a parent. And those times when you tell your little toddler, if you do that one more time, you're not going to get any ice cream. And they do it one more time. And you realize you have to keep your word because it's a trust issue. Do you remember how bad that hurts? Do you remember how bad you felt for them? Now there were times when with my three children, I would be so upset with them, I didn't have much sympathy. That happened more than I'd like to admit. But there were those times when the fact that they did, it, it was like, why do you do this? Why do you not just obey me? It would be such a little thing to obey me and have it over with. Why are you doing this? You remember feeling like that, mom and dad? I know you grandparents feel that, don't you? Have you ever thought about God? As you are sinning, as you are yielding to temptation, that instead of him saying, for two cents, I'll bust him right. What if you've understood this? You have a God who is sympathetic toward you, knowing, knowing who you are, how you're made, and what you are going to do How does he know what you're going to do? Well, one thing, he's an all-knowing God, so he knows every sin you're ever going to commit. And secondly, because he's the one that was punished by the Father in your place, and he knows what's coming, and all he feels for you is sympathy, because he knows how it's going to hurt, He knows what the cost is going to be. He knows what the result is going to be. He knows what the fruit is going to be. He knows you're going to reap what you sow. And here's a God in heaven who is sympathetic for you as your intercessor. Let that sink in to your heart as to how much he loves you. So we've got a gap that we can't cross. And he has to do it. That's why he became man. We need an intercessor who not just can point out what's wrong. The devil can do that. We need an intercessor who can understand, who can be compassionate, and who can sympathize with us 
so that he can pray for us and so that he can restore us just like he did the Apostle Peter. When the Apostle Peter met Jesus in John 21 on the shore of Galilee, isn't it interesting that Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Three times. How many times did Peter deny him? Three times. What was the Lord Jesus doing? He is saying, Peter, I died for that denial. And for every time that you denied me, I am going to take the step to restore you and bring you back where you're supposed to be. And that's the God who has made that commitment, the covenant in his own blood that we're going to talk about tonight and see in the Lord's Supper. Come back tonight because that's where the Lord is, the sympathetic high priest who intercedes for you. Thirdly, I want you to think about this, and you probably are way ahead of me on this one, but we need to talk about it anyway. The required sacrifice depends on his humanity. Do you realize that in Jesus' earthly pilgrimage, he didn't step out of heaven into a manger. He stepped out of heaven into Mary's womb at the point of conception, right? And for nine months, God was contained in that body of Mary. The conception was supernatural. But you know what? The pregnancy was just as normal and human as yours. When Mary and Joseph gave birth and delivered Jesus in that manger, any of you ever seen a childbirth? I saw three. I didn't want to see one. I wish I'd lived in the days where the men just stood out there in the waiting room and passed out cigars when the baby was born. But uh, I grew up in the era where you were supposed to be there. When Taylor was born in 1985, I had to put on the scrubs and all of that kind of stuff and go in there with the mask on and everything. When uh, Jenny was born four years later, you could have... 11 people or something like that in there in a birthing center. Completely different. But you know what? It didn't matter whether it was in a labor and delivery room or whether it was in a birthing center. It was disgusting. <laughs> right? All the way through. It was disgusting. In fact, I told Sammy after Taylor was born, I ain't doing that again. And she said, oh yeah, you are. If I have to go through it, you got to go through it. Yeah. And she won. She won. In fact, there was one time we were walking around in a mall in Dallas and uh, she went, went into a bookstore and there was a book and it showed graphic images of childbirth and it kind of made her sick. And I said, you should have been where I was on that whole thing, right? You know what? It wasn't any different for Mary. It wasn't any different for Joseph. The pain, everything else that happened there it, was a, it, it, it must have been traumatic. Think about it. When you think about Jesus growing up, what had to happen? He had to be wrapped up. He had to be kept warm. He had to nurse. He had to be changed. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. 
all of those kind of things went through. In fact, sometimes we think about things in terms of the blood of Jesus and we don't understand what that's really saying. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The shedding of blood, does that mean he just had to bleed? Well, that would mean then that every time a toddler Jesus skinned his knee, somebody got saved. You say, well, that's ridiculous. That's my point. When it says the shedding of blood, you know what that means? That's a euphemism for death. Without the draining of the body, Jesus bled out and he died. His body could no longer function because of the blood loss and the trauma and everything that happened. What are they saying? He had to die. The death penalty had to be executed against the Lord Jesus Christ. And how did Jesus die? Same way the thieves died when they were the thieves died when they were on the cross, or that you would die on the cross. His body quit functioning and was unable to function because of all the trauma that he had been through. That couldn't happen had he not become a human. How do you kill God? You can't. How do you nail a spirit to the cross? You can't. How does a ghost bleed out for you to the point of death? They can't. Jesus had to be a person. And when you think about him biologically, and when you think about the way that he lived on earth, what did he have to do? He had to eat. He had to sleep. There were times when he was tired. There were times when he was angry. There were times when he was encompassed with grief, he said. All of those kind of things would take place on him because he was fully God, yes, but he was also fully human. And so the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation was important because from the pregnancy to his birth to um, his genealogy, he inherited the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of those people, they were all present in his body, and um, he would look like his mother, and he would look like his mother's side of the family, of course. And it also came with some limitations. When Jesus came to earth, he could only be one place at a time. In fact, he even uh, tells us that there were certain things he didn't know. There were some times when he knew things like the Samaritan woman at the well and Lazarus dying and Peter's denial that he knew because they were revealed by the Father. Jesus made the statement, I only know what the Father reveals unto me. It was an, an amazing thing. And Jesus living his life in such a way, and it seems so normal that the vast majority of people that were around him missed the whole point of who he was, didn't they? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, and only a human can do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. You can't be raised from the dead unless you die, and you cannot die unless you are 
God becoming flesh, becoming a human. And why does that matter? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, that means he's not died either, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The sacrifice requires God to put on flesh and he has to die like you and I would die and of course there was a whole lot more to it than that as he was suffering for our sins spiritually and then number four why is it important that this God becomes flesh to be placed in a manger to later die on a cross to later be placed in a tomb to later be raised from the dead and later sit at the right hand of God the Father because his children, you and me we desperately need it I need it, you need it, we need it and we need it more desperately than we think you see when we find Jesus walking on earth this is a Jesus who is able to love he saw the rich young ruler and he loved him, the Bible said. He uh, had John the apostle, the beloved disciple. This is a God who loves. We find him being troubled. He says, my soul is troubled even unto death. He sweat as it were, great drops of blood, the Bible says. This is a God who had knowledge. This is a God who knew his Father. This is a God who could reveal the Father unto us. This is the one who knew about Judas. This is the one who knew what he was going to suffer. All of these things that are going on because he had to go through life the way we go through life. All the way to the point of death. It's interesting that when he refers himself in temptation in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he says, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Why was he saying that? Because he is the man that is being referred to there. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In John chapter 8, verse 40, he says, But now you seek to kill me, and what does he call himself? A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is what Abraham did. So it's amazing here that Jesus is not afraid to refer himself. I'm a man and you're trying to kill me. I'm a man that tells you the truth. I'm a man that lives by the word of God. Because in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, humans, in every, in every respect. Don't miss that. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why did Jesus go through all of that? Because he knew you were going to need his help. And that's why it says in Galatians chapter, uh, chapter 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. Somebody say amen to that. But a son. Mm. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I started off by quoting Spurgeon, the infinite who became an infant. Now I want to close with a quote from Spurgeon. No greater proof of kindness between the creator and his subjects can possibly be found than when the creator gives his only begotten and beloved son to die. Some think of God as if he were a morose being who hated all mankind. Some picture him as if he were some abstract subsistence taking no interest in our affairs. Listen, God has good will toward men. You know what good will means. Well, swearer, you have cursed God, but he has not fulfilled his curse on you. He has good will towards you, although you have no good will towards him. You have sinned high and hard against the Most High, but he has no hard things against you, for he has good will towards men. How many sinners are here today? Say amen. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, peace on earth, good will toward men. You are the redeemed of the Lord. And he loves you. And every time you see a manger scene with the Christ child in the manger, I want you to think this is the love of God and his good will for me. You are loved. You're not just tolerated. You are loved. You are welcomed. He is working in you. He comes to your aid. He has sympathy toward you. He bridged the gap that you could never cross. He's the one who intercedes for you at your weakest points. He's the one who fulfilled the ultimate sacrifice and his body was drained of its blood and he died and the death penalty came upon him in your place bearing the wrath of God for your sin. And now as his children, he still has good will for you, understanding where you are walking with you through it, refusing to forsake you, and giving you the power to overcome and the power to be restored on a daily basis because this is a God who has good will toward men. Somebody say amen. This is the God, the Jesus.
that we serve. Will you trust him? Will you give your life to him? Will you turn from trusting in your measly efforts to try to reform yourself and trust in the God who has done everything for you and give your heart and your life to him and trust him as the full payment for your sin? And those of you who have done that, will you continue to walk with him in that way knowing that he still loves you, he still cares for you, he still comes to your aid, he is is still sympathetic toward you and he still wants the very best for you for if God be for us and he is then who can be against us amen and amen heavenly father save those who are lost and convince those who are saved that you still love them as much as you ever did and your love will never change and I pray that you will help them understand you're more interested in them overcoming than they're interested in overcoming. Change us. Draw us. Sanctify us. And let us return your love and share your love with other people. And thank you so much that you are the God who has goodwill toward men through the Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. To God be the glory. And all God's people said. Amen. Thank you.